Ladies and gents, uh, welcome back to Engineers the Podcast. Uh, thanks for coming to join us. Well, today we've got Eric Landau, who's uh, a chap at Cord, co-founder of Cord. And he's going to be talking to us a little bit about automating annotations in computer vision. Okay, um, so we're going to explore um, some of those topics and discuss some of the challenges and probably some of the growth opportunities that can occur in this space at the moment. So, Eric, do you want to give us a little bit of an intro into you or say hello first? Do you want to give us a little bit of an intro into you, Cord, what you're building at the moment? Summarize that for us. Sure. Yeah. And uh, thanks for having me, Elliot. Um, I think that was a pretty good intro. So we're Cord. We automate computer vision annotation. So if you're building some kind of AI or computer vision model, uh, you need to have a lot of labeled training data. The kind of normal way that people do it is they send the data overseas to get annotated by literally factories filled with people that are just drawing boxes and polygons and classifying frames of things. So we thought that was a bit of an inefficient process. So we came up with some ways in which we can automate a lot of the process, bring down the human burden, and kind of pivot people's time from generating labels to actually reviewing labels and, and getting higher quality data sets. Um, so that's what we've, we've been doing so far. Nice. Okay. We'll explore that because, or we'll explore that in the next couple of moments. Uh, I learned this over the probably the last month or so, so we're mid-September at the moment, but I've learned quite a lot more about machine learning algorithms, self-learning. So I'm keen to ask some of those questions because that there is quite a lot of, let's just call it manual intervention in some of these processes. But give us a bit of a background into you and and where you come from. Yeah. So uh, my academic background was in physics. So I studied physics university. I started a PhD. I saw like the path of PhD was going to be long and arduous. And um, I had never done anything outside of physics. So I wanted to take a leave of absence to go try something in the real world. And that ended up becoming like a very, very long leave of absence. Um, I went to go um, work in quantitative trading just to try it for a year. Yeah, I, I ended up doing it for uh, almost a decade. It's what brought me to London. Um, so I was working in, in uh, trading equities. Uh, we were you know, putting a bunch of models into productions, trade equities and ETFs and futures and things like that. Um, after a while, I, I decided um, that I wanted to try something new. And I ran into my co-founder, uh, Ulrich, who had just finished his master's in computer science from Imperial. He had worked on a project there visualizing massive scale image data sets. And he had this idea and he just saw it how arduous it was to label uh, this, this, this data. And so that's where the seed of the idea came from of using some of the techniques that he had thought of, some of the things that I had thought about um, while trading and kind of putting it together to, um, to try to solve this problem. Okay. Uh, how do you actually go from, and this will probably dive into uh, core, uh, core's core offering in the next yep. couple of moments, but how do you actually go from manual labeling to automated labeling. Can you help us understand that part and what happens in between? Yeah, so there's there's kind of a, a cocktail of methods that you can use, um, some heuristic-based, some based on the business logic of the particular problem at hand. But the main, I think the main method that we use, and 
um, something that has been quite successful across a lot of different domains is this concept that we came up with called micromodels. Okay. So these are annotation-specific models that are verticalized for a particular task or particular piece of data. So what we realized was that um, you know you could try to automate the the entire labeling problem with one singular model, fit a bunch of data, and continuously like fit and retrain that model, or you could look at it another way and break down the problem into much smaller parts, decompose it into these very small models that are focused very specifically on one part of the problem. So you can have one model that's focused on one video, for instance, or yeah. on detecting one type of object within, within your labeling structure. And by doing it that way, you can very quickly with very few manual labels start generating these pieces of automation. Um, so within a few minutes, you can start training one of these micro models on the platform, uh, run it, and then get into active learning loops with with each uh, with each micro model, and what we do at the end is we ensemble all these micro models together to cover your entire kind of labeling distribution. So the normal flow looks like you know you, you put some data onto the platform, completely you know raw. There's no labels. Uh, you spend one or two minutes annotating a few examples. Uh, you very quickly train the micro model, and then you start using the micro model to um, generate more labels correct them, improve the micromodel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay. And that's, that, that flow has worked uh, quite successfully in a lot of domains. My knowledge is quite shallow. Okay, I've been quite upfront about that pre-podcast. Surely this has to be revolutionary from some of the companies and people that I've been speaking to and the manual labeling to actually uh, help your algorithm self-learn there's been so much time and energy and there's so many variables that you have to label as well. Surely you have to be doing something that is revolutionary in your space, or at least you believe so, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if like revolutionary uh, overstates Fine. it, but it is, a, we do have a different approach. The thing is that right now, it, basically everything that's coming out in, in computer vision AI is revolutionary to some degree, just because the okay, space yeah. is so new and none of the best practices have been established yet. We're in the very, very early days of this stuff. So, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of like easy money of just doing this kind of human wage arbitrage, which a lot of these companies are doing, of just sending data overseas, getting it labeled by people and sending it back. And a yeah. lot of companies just kind of followed that that easy money trajectory. And so there was maybe less incentive for them to try to automate automate these processes. So I don't know if it's a if it's uh, something that was kind of technically blind to them, or if it just wasn't in the best uh, interest of the business to start thinking about these things in this way. Um, but, you know, again, it's still like super early and we're constantly improving our methods and we're refining and we don't know what the final answer to this problem will be. Um, it could be that label data will not be the biggest problem in three, four years because unsupervised learning techniques take over, for instance. Um, so there's, I think there's this kind of need to just be humble with what you're, what you're um, creating in the space because yeah. you'll always be upended in a in a year or a couple months or so. Okay, that that's you've probably given us quite a lot of context anyway on what Cord do or what you're all building. But can you tell us a little bit about life at Cord at the moment and and what that looks like and what you're working on? Yeah, so um. It's it's pretty exciting because you know we're we're growing quite rapidly from um, yep. from the customer side. So we're having you know new customers come in that have a bunch of like really interesting use cases, 
uh, applications of computer vision that I would have never have guessed. <laughs> so things that are okay. quite surprising to me. Um, and with that comes a lot of um, feature requests and a lot of kind of thought of like, how do you improve the, optimize the platform? How do you improve methods? How do you add more intelligence to fit this kind of new use case? How do you add um, more techniques that we see a lot of our customers are, are, um, are rep doing redundantly across themselves? So yep. from our perspective, you know, someone that's working with us, you know, we're, we're kind of showing, okay, here's what's going on in the, on the business side of things. Um, here are the sets of, um, you know, of priorities and features that will help the, this client and this client and this client. And then yep. we're kind of giving it to the engineering team to figure out, all right, how do you actually implement this into something that we can then ship back and, and create value for them? So it's a very, uh, it's, we're in a very agile kind of environment. Uh, we're constantly yep. um, interacting with the clients and, um, and figuring out ways of improving the platform and doing it very nice. dynamically at a very kind of fast pace. You're self-learning yourself then, which I quite like, or Cord is as a business as you're growing, like you say. Where do you think you guys and girls can be in the next one, two years? I wouldn't have expected that we would um, get to where we are now so quickly. So it's very hard to kind of extrapolate Let's the future. Let's not two years then. Yeah, yeah. So what we want to be, um, essentially what we're, what, what we're trying to, to build is not just a, an annotation platform, but really a training data platform. Yeah. So okay. um, we want to be the infrastructure for training data. And there's a whole host of problems that are associated with getting a training data pipeline working. The annotation piece is the biggest bottleneck for teams now um, to yeah. build these applications. And so starting with automating it uh, will, you know, will be like a, a, a big hook to start getting all of their training data um, tools and infrastructure through us. So we have kind of a, a very wide vision of going beyond just labeling and really being like a data-centric um, AI platform um, and, 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 and servicing like, you know, all types of computer vision use cases through that. Nice. Okay. Uh, if, if we just begin to roll back... Um, some of those conversations away from the uh, data training platforms and go back to um, some of that annotation piece. Uh, help us understand, which we've spoken about offline as well, help us understand some of those challenges around uh, image and video annotation, because I think they're quite interesting to explore. Video, for instance, has has a bunch of challenges that that naturally come with it. It's a very dense data type. It's very heavy. Um, it, it takes a lot of space. Uh, okay. a, a video, you know, 30 frames per second. Uh, you every second you have, you know, 30 images associated with just that moment. So you often don't need to annotate every single frame of it. So if you're if you're um, a company, let's say a gastroenterology company that's yep. that's trying to um, build um, an AI model for you know detecting polyps or whatever, and you're given a bunch of video. Do you go and annotate every single polyp example for every single frame of the video? Or do you have to figure out some way of subsampling the video, for instance, um, such that you know, the, the performance of the model won't, won't degrade, but you don't have to throw as much data through the process and, and like, uh, incur a lot of compute time? So there's the idea of kind of managing all of these like, big data structures yeah. um, just from a kind of piping perspective. There's the idea of figuring out how do you intelligently subsample this stuff so that uh, you can get it lighter and you don't have to go through, uh, you know, through the entire piece of data. 
There's a, a bunch of like just um, more nuanced technical issues related to videos. So syncing frames with timestamps, for instance, getting corrupt frames, kind of moving data, back, uh, moving video data back and forth. Um, those are kind of in the weeds, but it's it's a it's like inherently just very tricky um, thing to manage just because of how um, how dense it is. Uh, images, it's a slightly different. Um, I mean, it's a different set of problems uh, because yeah. images can be free floating. They don't necessarily have to be stacked together, but it has a, a kind of a same, there's a, a, this, a same kind of flavor of a problem in that if you have a bunch of images from a, a distribution, do you label everything? Do you sub like label a subsample of it? How do you effectively manage it? How do you make sure that um, your model is doing well across all the images? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's quite tricky from a lot of these AI, um, AI teams. What have you learned about some of those differences you've spoken about a little bit earlier in the podcast you've learned a lot about some of the different use cases in uh, companies using computer vision help me understand a little bit about what you're learning about both and how that evolves um yeah so i'm learning that there is no limit to the type of use cases for this technology and uh, when I say like some very surprising use cases, I don't know if I can share all of them, but um, okay. there are some like super, very, very surprising uh, uh, use cases. So one company that is, you know, like a, a I think a well-known Irish company, um, they, they you know, are quite a big business. They just do facial recognition for cows. And okay. that's like a, quite a big business just doing facial recognition for cows. Not something I would have ever uh, anticipated as being being a problem, but one of the things where once you hear about it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but I, I would have never imagined it from kind of a first principles perspective. So what what I'm learning really is that um, anything that a human can kind of perceive from like a, a visual perspective, some things sometimes things that we can't perceive in kind of more rare computer vision modalities, you can find a use case for um, that that um, you know can can do something interesting in the real world. Um, and again, like there's just a bunch of examples kind of floating around my mind, but um, uh, you know, we, 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 we do, we have to like keep, uh, keep some of these things secret, but it's, it's, it's quite exciting to kind of learn about this, this new stuff. Nice. Uh, give us, give us one or two examples. Okay. So yeah, I can, the things I can say um, publicly. Okay. So an example is, uh, because it's coming out in a paper, something that we worked with the Stanford, Stanford Department of Medicine. Um, it was a um, nephrology project to detect these, um, these substructures in mouse cells, right? Um, and it's kind of this esoteric problem. But we realized, and the, the way that they were doing it in the lab was they were doing it extremely manually. It was doing it over three different pieces of software. They would kind of find the cells, like some lab technician would find the cell and then move that data over to another piece of software where they could uh, find the volume of the substructure in the cell, which would then go to another piece of software for analysis. Um, and we realized, you know, when we heard the use case, oh, you can just automate the entire thing with, you know, uh, with our platform. So that's what we yeah. did. We just showed them, oh yeah, just do this, this, and this. And then like your analysis is just done and you you can use these micro models and some other um, other kind of automation pieces um, to just get the the final results uh, without spending you know days of um, some poor postdoc's time uh, to to do it, um, you, you could just do it through through um, through a, kind of an automated fashion. So they that's shocked. 
Huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they, they were. <laughs> I think they were. They were quite happy. Uh, 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 they were like, "Oh yeah, this this saves a bunch of time." They're they're quite thankful about about the process. So that's that's like a, a public use case I can share. Um, there's um, yeah. So one one kind of more um, uh, like esoteric use case is like a, a thing of just interacting with uh, buttons and things through websites. And you would think that there was kind of a programmatic way doing doing that, but there there are some companies that are actually doing this through vision. So um, having models to detect things that are that are on a screen, and then figuring out like what you should do with those things on the screen um, in places where uh, you don't have access to the actual um, the code to access you know what is actually available on the screen. You can just put a camera on it. Um, that's like that's an interesting use case. That I think is is a relatively public one as well. But there's like there's uh, there's there's a bunch of these things. Um, it's it's pretty crazy. As I think about it, and this is pro- probably slightly off piece, but I use the word revolutionary. Fine, uh, maybe you're not revolutionary, okay? But uh, as I listen to you and some of the businesses that you're working with, clearly there's an appetite for the simplicity, the effectiveness, the speed for cord. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot, but what, what do you think are your limitations at the moment in terms of just being a, let's just say, a service platform for everyone in CV right now? What are those limiters for you? To, to be honest, like the limits that we're experiencing now are just headcount, getting more people on board. Fine. Because we're, so. we're super bandwidth constrained on on uh, on the people that we have in the company, so that's that's like that is our, really our, our main limit now. Cool. Um, in terms of technologically, because because we were thinking about these things as micro models rather than like you know kind of bigger, broader models, it, it, it actually is surprising that it works quite effectively across a bunch of different domains because. You're you're really getting the problem to be like the simplest nugget that it can be, and then throwing a model at that simple simple nugget. So, you know, at at the simplest basis, something like an autonomous vehicle problem doesn't look so much different than a microscopy problem, or doesn't look so much different from robotic process automation, or you know, agriculture or satellite imaging. And so, decomposing it has been like quite effective in. Um, in kind of transcending these these vertical use case bounds, um, of course, there's other kinds of limitations that we're facing just in terms of, well, scaling and infrastructure and yeah. figuring out how to you know how to do all the ML ops correctly and you know getting you know getting the right kind of compute services up and running and things like that. But it's not on the it's not on the deficiency of like the the ML side. It's more of all of the the operations and infrastructure that we're kind of feeling the most the most constraint with now. I was going to say, from a scale infrastructure and compute perspective, that has got to be astronomical uh, with just the, the sheer volumes of data that you're operating with at, at such speed. Uh, yeah, we have we have a bunch of data on the platform, um, a lot a lot of kind of throughput of data. Um, the yeah and and we're we're training a bunch of models uh, luckily you know this is much easier than it would have been you know 10 years ago now that you have all these cloud cloud providers that you can yeah. kind of easily scale up with but 
the ML side of this stuff is still extremely tricky. Uh, managing okay. GPUs, extremely tricky. Um, best practices, again, have not been established here. And so uh, we, we have to, you know, we have to do things sometimes the hard way. I think in five, 10 years, uh, we'll be looking back at this kind of how we're looking back at the, com the compute uh, problems that people were having 10 years ago. And there yep. will be equivalent of a, you know, AWS or GCP for all of these kind of ML ops problems that would have yep. been just like now a click of the button. I think we'll be part of that solution, but we're definitely feeling the pain of not having that now. Okay. Uh, what, what are some of the tools in tech that are quite prominent at Cord? Give us an understanding of, of your environment, tech environment. Yeah. So um, from like our tech stack, I think uh, aside from uh, all of the ML things is pretty vanilla, you know, front end yep. React Redux. Um, you know, we, we, we use um, a Tornado web server um, on, on the back end, which is kind of like a, it's in between like Django and Flask. And yep. um, we, you know, Postgres database, um, you know, we're, we're using uh, AWS and GCP. Uh, all that stuff, I think, is like fairly vanilla from the tech perspective. On the yep. ML side, it's, you know, there's just, we use basically every library. Um, so okay. we're throwing a bunch of stuff at the at the problem. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like if you can think of like some kind of ML or AI library, we're probably using in some capacity. All right, nice, cool. What well, what do you think we need to know about micro models? Because it, it's popped up a couple of times. You gave us a really good intro into it really early on um, in this pod, and, and we've touched on it just over a couple of moments there, where you're probably able to diversify some of those micro models across different problems and use cases. So, uh, as an audience, what what do we really need to know about micro models? Do you feel? That, and there, there's like some controversy over over this, but that um, overfitting does not necessarily have to be a bad thing. Because like essentially the idea behind micro models, like you're fitting to a very narrow space. There's like some debate over like the parlance here, but you're you're kind of overfitting to a very narrow part of your data distribution um, or a very kind of narrow set of set of tasks, and that's not recommended kind of uh, uh, practice in in um, in AI. So People shy away from it, but because we we just kind of use are using these models as a tool, we're happy to do it because we just see that it it makes the process actually more efficient. So yeah, to not be so afraid about this idea of kind of overfitting for this purpose, um, okay. in that we're not using this as a robust kind of downstream model that you're using on out of sample data where a human is not involved at all. So I think that that's like one concept that. I think people can get familiar with in, in terms of how we're approaching this, this stuff. Yeah. And just the second is that, you know, they, they work surprisingly well across a lot of different domains. I think that's, um, that's something that we just, we weren't, we weren't confident in the beginning, but it, it just empirically has, has worked across a bunch of different things. So um, yeah, those are kind of two, um, you know, two ideas to, <laughs> to plant in about, about micro models. I'm happy to like go into any like specifics around that. Yeah, I was I was going to ask uh, how how tough is it to get the accuracy right for micro yes. models on 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 two different problems because I think that's quite an interesting concept. Let's use uh, the mouse cells and maybe um, recognition in the cow's face. You know that model specifically might not be used for the two of the same things, but how do you get that accuracy right? 
Yes. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a great point, and uh, that's kind of like a, another very big big aspect about um, this this methodology is that we do not think of accuracy in the same way that normal data scientists think of accuracy. Accuracy here actually doesn't really matter for us. What matters is efficiency. So it's throughput of generating labels of sufficient quality. And sufficient quality means that it's been reviewed by a person at the end of the day. So if you have a model that's even 50% accurate, but you can speed up the labeling process by 2x or 3x, that's a win for us. Even though right. the model is not going to be used, it, it's not going to be used in another context besides this this, this uh, labeling procedure. It still has been super useful in um, in generating labels at less cost and with with more scale. So we we have a, like a very different way of kind of thinking about accuracy, and oh. you know because because we're okay with overfitting the stuff, we we you know we're we're also okay with the models not doing well in an from an accuracy standpoint and out of distribution data, um, they're not supposed to, um, and and you wouldn't expect them to. So, yeah, kind of this other this kind of other perspective of the way that you think about accuracy of models is um, is kind of something that we've we you know we've developed over time. That's a really good way to actually understand Cord uh, as a business. I think if you look at uh, traditional models, from what I understand, the accuracy has always been around let's just say a 90% rate of, let's say, success on uh, this is a football, for example, or every time you see this shape in a picture, it is a football. Um, so I think how you've just described that is a really good way for me to understand chord, I feel, now. Yeah, it's it's think of models in a different way. That's That's kind of, you know, we're using models for, we're, we're ML for ML, so... You yep. have to sure. think about the first part of ML differently because otherwise you say, well, why can't the second part of ML do the first part? Um, so, yeah, we just have a different perspective on, on these problems. And, yep. um, you know, our, our goal is to generate training data as fast and as, as cheaply as possible, as scalably as possible. Uh, what you yep. do with that training data is a completely different process. Um, and should go through all like the best practices of data science, AI, don't overfit uh, kids, you know, <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, do, do the right thing with your data. But for us, we, we have a different way of doing it. Okay. Um, again, slightly off piece, talk to us about recent funding, because uh, this will correlate back to scaling, growing operations, etc. So talk to us about recent funding and what this means for you and the team. Uh, yeah, so we we um, came out of Y Combinator at the beginning of this year. Uh, we raised a, a seed round after that. We we raised like a, I think a, a fairly sizable seed, seed round for um, for Europe at least, and yeah. um, have just been growing the team since then. Um, again, the, the the business itself is is growing quite rapidly, um, yeah. and we uh, I think we've, we've been okay on the on the fun, funding side. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about um, about where we are now, uh, as as like in in the kind of place of the business. But we raised a four and a half million dollar yeah uh, round. That That's pretty impressive. I think it's. I mean, the environment is very is very favorable. Um, it's even more favorable now than when we raised our original seed round. So yeah, we I, it's kind of being at the right place at the right time. What do you mean environment? Do you mean um, state of the world at the moment in terms of investment and VC? Yes. The VC environment okay. is is quite favorable now. Okay, what what was it like coming out of Y Combinator? 
if you can talk about some of those details. Yeah, no, Y, y Combinator was great. Um, we, we got a lot, of, a lot out of it. Uh, it was remote, uh, yeah. but we actually did go to California to, um, to spend it there because we thought we'd be clever and you know, we would um, be in the same time zone as all these other people in Y Combinator. Small. But it turns out most of our customers were in, were in Europe. So we ended up being up you know, very late or very early and it was a terrible decision for us to, to go to California, uh, but it was still nice to enjoy the weather. weather. Um, but what YC does is they really kind of put this framework of accountability around you um, to actually focus on growth, um, to really kind of building the business, to not sit around and kind of tinker on the tech and just kind of, it's easy to get lost in the weeds of engineering because that's where your natural inclination is to go. Um, but yeah. to actually take, you know, take what you've built and put it out into the real world and see yeah. people actually gaining value from it and growing from that. So that, that accountability and the network and the mentorship was all yeah. really, really good. Um, and then there's the, the fundraising piece, which Y Combinator is, is kind of like the, is this fundraising factory that's uh, very yeah. efficient and effective now with the stuff. So uh, we, we got a lot, a lot out of all those different aspects of, of the program. Uh, super glad that we did it. Good for you. Honestly, really good for you. Talk, talk to us a little bit about scaling the team and what that's going to look like over the next 12 months or so it's been kind of a slow deliberate process um you know we've been we've been kind of very uh, careful with the, the first people that we bring on board uh you yeah. know coming out of white comedy coming out of a seed round um because you know we have we know that you know the first person that you get will bring the next 30 people that you get right so yeah. There is this this huge leverage effect between the quality of the, the the initial hires that you get and the quality of the entire organization over time. So we were you know we were quite quite choosy in, uh, in the beginning, and now um, we've kind of built out a core team. And once you have a core team, then the process accelerates a little bit because now you can get other people to help you interview for the next batch of people. But yeah, we're we, you know we're looking to kind of expand the engineering team. There's there's plenty of um, of room on the ML engineering side, uh, finding good front end people is always a tough one. You know, I think that's that's something a lot of companies are struggling with now. Uh, that's definitely something that we um, uh, we would love to get, like you know, experienced front end people on board, um, and and then kind of hiring on the uh, after after getting the engineering um, kind of team in place is it would be hiring on the um, kind of sales and marketing side, which we're still yet to do. Good. Okay. For everyone listening, there's going to be some links below where you can reach out to uh, Eric and the team and um, come and learn a little bit more about what they're doing if you haven't already. Uh, and you can reach out to the guys directly. Uh, have Have you got a a message for people about Cord and probably how you would describe culture, collaboration? Yeah. I, I, so, um, you know, culture is just the values that you probably have personally and that you want reflected in the organization. The values that, you know, my co-founder and I really put a lot of, of weight into are integrity, uh, transparency. Um, we want to be, you know, um, uh, have, have a lean in, in environment. We want to have growth mentality. So we're both from finance. And in finance, if you, you know, if you make a mistake on a trading desk, you can't hide it to yourself. Um, you you have to you have to be very quick to admit that you made a mistake. Uh, yeah. And there's this kind of um, this idea of like transparency, and um, you, you have to have a lot of integrity to to be able to kind of manage within within that environment. So I think a lot of yeah. those so same kind of cultural values probably um, flow have have flown um, to 
to cord. But yeah, we, we also want people that are, um, are willing to learn and to grow because this space, again, is so new and so young. And there's so much that we don't know about the technology yet and is yet to be discovered that we can't just have people kind of sitting down in, in stasis and in equilibrium kind of working on a problem that uh, might not be relevant in six months or a year. They have to really kind of have this idea that, all right, well, you know, stuff is going to change and I'm going to change with it, but I'm going to get stronger and, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to learn a lot along the way. So I think all those things, uh, are, are what we, we, Ulrich and I personally value. And I think it's what our, our initial team also values when, you know, when we're kind of bringing them on board. Ladies and gents, if you're in the engineering sphere, I think, uh, these guys and girls are definitely, a team to look out for, a team to explore. Uh, if you're interested in ML, CV, and I think what's next in this space, I feel, again, fairly shallow opinion, um, but I feel from what I've heard and seen so far over the last one, two years, these guys are at the forefront of the industry with with some of what they're doing. So, Eric, I just want to say a big thanks. Uh, a big thanks for chatting to us, giving us 30, 35 minutes of some really good content on you guys and girls, uh, what a micro model is and and some of what you're building. So a massive, massive thanks. And honestly, really best of luck. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks so much for, for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and yeah, thanks for having giving us the opportunity to, to speak to your platform and um, yeah, your audience. And yeah, we, we look forward to kind of staying in touch and seeing how this stuff plays out. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And for everyone listening, if we can give likes, shares, recommendations, subscribes, and all those fun social things, uh, I think that'll go a massive long way for Eric, Oric, team at Cord. Thanks, guys and girls. Bye for now. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.